0: God, each one of us enters this room and even enters this time around your word, very different conditions of our mind and our soul. Some of us distracted, some of us burdened, some of us locked in and joyous. But each one of us, wherever we're at, needs a word from you this morning. We need to hear what you are saying. We believe that this is not the word of man, but the very word of God, your word. And so help us, Lord, to understand. And pro- Father, I pray that you would help me as I explain it. And I pray, Father, that your word would be clear this morning, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if any of you followed Nike's recent attempt to break the two-hour barrier for a marathon. I did, because that's just utterly insane. In order to run a marathon in under two hours, someone would have to run 42 kilometers at a 21 kilo- kilometer per hour pace. I know my math's really good there. 21 kilometers per hour is about how fast when I, I run when I'm running a full-on sprint. You have to do that for two hours. Less than two hours. The fastest marathon to date is about three minutes off that pace. That might not seem like it's a big gap, but then think about for the last 50 years of world records in marathons, we've only been able to shave off about six minutes off the pace because the human body can only run a marathon so fast. But Nike committed themselves to seeing it happen. So they identified three elite marathoners, one of whom was named Iliud Kip, uh, Kipchoge. And they did everything they could to help these men succeed. They found a location where they could run the course in, idea, in an ideal climate, perfectly flat, no ups and downs. Then they, had, uh, they put a team around them where you had people on bicycles riding next to them handing them energy uh, supplements or, or hydration whenever they needed it. They also got a group of elite runners who would form a wedge in front of them that would rotate in and out of the marathon, forming a wedge to, to reduce just a little bit of, of the uh, wind that they'd have to cut through, as well as to set the pace. And they had a car right in front driving at the two-hour uh, two pace so that they would know exactly where they needed to be. Well... Two of the runners dropped out, but Kipchoge was able to finish the race. Just two weeks ago, he ran, and he ran it in two hours and 25 seconds. (laughs) The book of Hebrews likens the Christian journey to a distance race. Now unlike with Nike it's not concerned with how fast we run it the concern in Hebrews over and over again is con- is that we actually finish the race it's not about our pace but like Nike Hebrews gives us what we need it gives us everything we need in order to succeed in this race you see God wants us to be able to finish the race to endure to the end He wants us to not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's clearly the heartbeat of this passage. There is one main command in our passage. It's found at the end of verse 1 where it says, let us run with endurance endurance the race that is set before us. There's one other command there in verse 3, consider. But what's the purpose of that considering? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, run with endurance. Consider him so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. God wants us to endure. He wants us to press on without growing weary or faint-hearted. God wants you and he wants me to finish the race. He doesn't give us pacers cutting the wind for us. Or He doesn't hand deliver hydration packs to us so that we can run faster. Instead, He gives us three keys so that we can endure. Endure to the end. The first key, key is to hear from those who've completed the race. Hear from those who've completed the race. The second key is to put off anything that hinders. Put off anything that hinders. And the third key is to consider Jesus. So the first key, to hear from those who finished the race. Verse 1 beginning says since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. This is is a condition by which we're able to run with endurance. This great cloud of witnesses. Now, the word witnesses can be taken two different ways. The first is like a witness to a crime or a spectator. You know, somebody who is witnessing what's happening, they're observing it. If that were how this word was to be understood here the bible would be saying that the key to our endurance is to remember who's watching us we just spent several weeks or two weeks in hebrews 11 considering all these different people abraham and moses and rahab and david and samson all these different people they form a cloud of spectators who are watching us we want to run because look look i know you're watching. But there's actually another way the word witness can be taken. It's like when you witness to somebody, when you tell them about what God has done for you. Witnessing in that sense is telling somebody else what you have experienced. And it's this second meaning that makes the most sense in our passage. So the Bible is telling us we're surrounded a bunch of, by a bunch of people who have completed the race. And you need to hear what they're saying. I know some of you in this room have gone through chemo treatments. More of us in this room have gone with somebody when they've been going through their chemo treatments. And when you're sitting there waiting for your turn, every once in a while, you hear... A bell ring. And what happens when that bell rings? Everybody cheers. Because that means that that person has gotten to the end of the course of their treatments. They have finished what was laid out before him. And so everyone erupts and cheer for them. And you're, you're cheering for them for more than one reason. One is you just are so glad for them that they're done. But the other reason you're cheering is because you're encouraged, because it's a reminder that there is an end to this brutal regimen. In that sense, they are witnesses to us. Now, just imagine if you're going through some sort of battle with cancer, and everyone who's gone through that same battle and survived and made it wrote down just a little testimony of what it was like for them, how hard it was, how difficult it was, and what they did in the midst of that difficulty, and how, when they finally reached the end, it was worth it. And all those people who had survived gave you that book. You better believe you'd be opening it up regularly and reading it. When things were low for you, when things were hard for you, or maybe when you're having a great day and you wanted to open it and be encouraged, you'd open it and you'd see these examples of people who had finished their treatments, who had finished the race, who were telling you, keep on going, you can do this. The Bible does the same thing for us with faith. All the people, or so many of the people on the pages of Scripture are people who have gone before us in faith and hope. And their stories have been written down for us. Now, when you read them, they're not perfect people. It's not like they're these people up here. In fact, a lot of times you read these stories and you go, Ooh, they got problems. They're as sinful as I am, if not worse. You see their ups and downs. You see how hard it is for them to run that race. But consistently, they look to God and trust His promises. And they then find the reward. So as we run our our race, the people on the pages of Scripture testify to us. They tell us that our faith is not in vain. That God does, in fact, keep His promises. That the future reward far outweighs the present sufferings. As we run our marathon there are all sorts of people on the pages of Scripture who will run a leg with us. And as they do, they'll tell us the marathon they ran. They'll tell us how hard it was, how they stumbled, how they felt weak. But they'll also tell us how they held on to their faith in the midst of all of it. And they'll tell us that it's worth it. That their faith has been rewarded. The first key to finishing the race is to hear from those who've completed the race that dwell in the pages of our scriptures. Let me put it this way. If you want to endure to the end, you need to get to know the men and women of faith in the Bible. If you're unwilling to listen to those who've completed the marathon, you're unlikely to finish the race yourself. That was the first key. The second key is to put off anything that hinders. We see that next in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, the way that reads in our English, it looks like its own, its, this is its own command. Let us lay aside every weight. But in the Greek, it's grammatically linked to the main command, let us run with endurance. So in the Greek, it isn't the first command. It's the second means to the main command, run with endurance. Now, you don't need Greek grammar to understand this. It's actually a pretty simple concept. We get the correlation pretty intuitively. If I'm going to run with endurance, I have to take off anything that's going to hinder me, right? Do you know at the uh, Columbus Marathon, the the runners leave behind a whopping 10,000 pounds of clothing and equipment. Most of that is shed either just as the race is starting or at the four-mile mark. Don't ask me why it's there. 10,000 pounds. That's a lot of clothes. And then I checked the Boston Marathon. 50,000 pounds of clothes and equipment. When you are running a marathon, and you're actually running it, you don't want anything weighing you down. So if your goal is to finish the race, And here's the question for you. What is it that you have to put off? The Bible lists two different things to put off. The first thing it says is every weight. And this is a general category that includes things that are not bad in and of themselves. For example, Facebook or sports. They're not evil. But if they begin to encroach on our spiritual journey and stifle it, then they may need to be put aside. Good things like your career or your children or your grandchildren's achievements could actually be crippling your spiritual walk. Ken Hughes says, if an otherwise good thing drags you down, you must strip it away. The second category is the sin that clings so closely. Now did you notice the second category isn't just sin. It's sin that clings closely. And what that kind of sin is is actually different for each one of us. Because all of us are wired differently, which means we're all inclined to different sins. For one, it might be lust, for another, it could be pride or jealousy or self reliance. Others might struggle with gossip or unsubmissiveness, or dishonesty, or drugs or alcohol addiction, or same-sex attraction. Whatever your besetting sin is, whatever my besetting sin is, it must be rooted out cannot have a place in our lives or it will destroy us. I want to just pause here and just make a a special appeal to you. Because I know that for many of us here, God is using this particular word to bring something specific to your mind when I talked about a weight or maybe a besetting sin, you knew God's calling me out. So I want to encourage you. Do something about it. Take action. God's voice to you this morning could not be any more clear. Put off anything that could be hindering you that could in some way end up keeping you from finishing the race. So if you want to finish the race, that means if you want to get to the end and hear Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of depart from me, then we need to take this seriously. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If it is better, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. We must be willing to take dramatic and bold steps to rid ourselves of weights and besetting sins. Now for many of us, that first step is just telling somebody. Telling a pastor, or a pastor's wife, or a trusted Christian friend. And then the second step after that might be just prayer and fasting. Humbling yourself, enlisting a team, and that's where it could be hard. Getting people, other people, who know what you're going through. But enlisting a team who will be prayer warriors for you. And just cry out to God for help. And if you need more help beyond that, if you need more help beyond that, look at me. You have my word that this church will come alongside you and do everything we can to help you fight and help you win. I say that not just as a vain promise, but because I've seen our church do that over and over again. Our church has walked with people who have put off drug use, who have put off sexual addiction, who have put off eating disorders, who have put off anxiety, who have put off control issues, who have put off hopelessness. Our church is a hospital for sinners. If you are struggling in your sin, this is where you need to be. Not because of what we do, but because we know where to look. We know who can heal. We know what gospel can actually affect us. So if you come and you talk to somebody here, you know, know that we're not going to look down on you. If we're looking down on you, we're looking down on ourselves too because we're alike sinners. Instead, what we're going to do is mutually look up together. We're going to look at our Savior. So please, 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 for the sake of your own soul, I plead with you lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. I mean, how beautiful would it be to see 10,000 pounds of sins and encumbrances left behind by this church in the next few weeks. So we need to put off anything that hinders us. I said, first we need to be in God's word hearing from those who've completed the marathon. Those are the first two keys. But the third key is the most crucial. And it's where I'll spend the most time. The third key, to use the language of verse 2, is looking to Jesus. Or to use the language of verse 3, consider Him, that is, consider Jesus. So the third key is consider Jesus. Now, there are two ways we are to consider Him the first way that we're to consider him is to look to him as the ultimate example of faith. So we've been cruising along through Hebrews 11 looking at all these different examples of people who had faith. People who endured their present hardship in light of a future reward and who were ultimately vindicated in that hope. So we're cruising along through Hebrews 11 and then we come to Jesus who is the pinnacle of the examples. He is the great example. Just watch the progression that's there in verse 2. Who, for the joy that was set before him. So the the, the, the father promised the son a reward. He sets a joy before him, the joy of victory over sin and death. And returning to reign with him at the Father's right hand, not only in judgment, but also in salvation for those who'd repent and believe. that great joy set before him, the joy set before him. He endured the cross. On the basis of this joy, Jesus endures the cross. He despises the shame it means, it says, which means he counts it as nothing. It's totally worthless, that shame. It has no bearing. And in the end, what's the result? There's Jesus, the one who rescued us sinners by enduring the shame and torture of the cross, seated in victory at the Father's right hand. He received what was promised to him. There's the promise of reward, there's the faith in that promise, there's the ability to endure the worst because of that, and then ultimate victory and vindication. Now, when it comes to faith in the book of Hebrews, that's textbook, that's the formula. You remember the equation we learned last week? Future certainty equals present endurance. Jesus embodied that. He was able to endure because he was so sure about what was to come. Verse 3 has the same emphasis. Talks about him who endured from sinners such hostility Have you noticed the word endure a few times? Let us run with endurance. And then we're told Jesus endured the cross. And then we're told He endured hostility. You see, He's the example of how to run with endurance. In part because His agony was greater than any other. The thin mountain air is hardest for those who have become used to more oxygen-filled air of the lower altitudes. The agony of this fallen world is hardest on the one who is used to complete and eternal perfection of the Godhead. But God the Son was willing to take on flesh. To endure the pain and heartache of humanity. And then he was willing to die on a Roman cross as a criminal with all the shame and the mocking that went with it. Verse 2 says he despised the shame. He considered that shame the worst shame anyone could ever know. He considered that shame nothing Not only was the Holy One mocked and beaten by sinners, He also absorbed the full wrath that our sin deserved. He stood in our place, He bore our shame, and He paid the price for our sin. The eternal, perfect Son, who had known perfect harmony and peace with God the Father, did this. His agony was greater than anything we will be asked to endure, and His faith was pure in the face of it. Why he's the ultimate example. Now I grew up in Chicago in the 90s. And you can imagine me and all my friends wanted to be like Mike. We wore Michael Jordan's basketball shoes and his jersey. We stuck out our tongue whenever we were doing anything serious. We attempted his turning fadeaway that no one could stop. We tried to trash talk like him, I still try to, and then we had those adjustable hoops and we'd lower the hoop. (laughs) Boy, our reverse layups and jams were all trying to do exactly what he could do. And for the really serious basketball players, the elite ones, they studied his game intensely. Because Michael Jordan had perfected basketball. LeBron James is no Michael Jordan, just so you know. (laughs) All right, he would perfected basketball. And so if you wanted to be great in basketball, you wanted to be like Mike. That's why we need to look to Jesus. That's why we need to consider Jesus, because he perfected it. He is the epitome of faith. So we consider Jesus as the example of our faith. Now that's the first kind of big category of why we're supposed to consider Jesus. But there's a second one. You might have noticed that I skipped over an important phrase looking to Jesus. What's the very first thing it says in verse two? The founder and perfecter of our faith. So the first reason is because he's an example. But the second reason we're to consider him is because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now that phrase is just chock full of important meaning. And so I want to take some time to unpack that, and it's going to take a little care. With any technology or innovation, you usually have two key players. The person who invented or pioneered it, and the person who perfects it. So with automobiles, you had Carl Benz, and then you had Henry Ford. With phones, you had Alexander Graham Bell and then you had Steve Jobs. With rock and roll you had Elvis and then you had Justin Bieber. (laughs) Okay, so it doesn't always work that way, but it often does. But when it comes to faith, when it comes to faith, Jesus is both. He's the originator of and he's the perfecter. Now that word in our passage, perfecter of our faith, is a really weird word, both in English and in Greek, but it takes us back to chapter 11, verse 40. Remember last week? It talks about these heroes of the faith, but then it says, apart from us they should not be made perfect. Same word. We learn then that because of All all the promises of God only exist under His grand promise, which is His promise to redeem humanity from the fall. So all the smaller promises of God that the men and women of chapter 11 believed found their perfection in that generation because they and we have the fulfillment of the grander promise. That's what founder and perfecter of our faith is getting at. That, that all the faith before that was rooted in something that ultimately found its fulfillment in the founder and perfecter of the faith. So as you're reading along in chapter 11 and you, and you read example after example, what's the refrain? By faith, Moses. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Rahab. But when you come to Jesus, it changes. It doesn't say by faith. Yes, we look to Him as an example, but it says we look to the founder and perfecter of our faith. So so what does it mean that He's the founder? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, There is the promise. This is right after Adam rebels against God. And there's the promise that there will be a rescuer. That's when faith began. That's when you could say, I believe God for something that's coming. And that foundation was a foundation in Jesus. The ultimate fulfillment of that faith, the founding of that faith, was a foundation in Jesus. That's the foundation of our faith. But it didn't just become the founder of it, he also brought about the completion or perfection of our faith. And he did this when he died on the cross. Now, I just want to take those two poles for a second and explain it a little bit more. Because on the cross, Jesus did something. He defeated sin and he defeated death. Now, go back here When the Bible talks about all that Adam unleashed upon this world when he rebelled against God, it talks about kind of a darkness that just pervades the world. And it's a terrible and horrible darkness that wreaks havoc. It's a thick darkness that cuts us off from our whole fellowship with God. It's a pervasive darkness that penetrates our souls. That darkness is what causes our bodies to break down and decay. It's that darkness that introduced cancer and disease and chemical imbalances. The Bible puts all of that, the sickness, the dying, the decaying, under the category of death. That darkness also bent our souls towards sin. So that darkness also produced anger and strife and jealousy it produced the lust and pride and penchant for gossip that our generation tries to minimize because we don't want to feel guilty about it. And the Bible t- takes all of that and puts that in the category of sin. That pretty much covers all that's broken in this world. It's that darkness that was unleashed that brought death and brought sin. So when God promises to make all, right all that Adam spoiled, if he founded the faith at that moment, then when that fulfillment is going to be reached, when we're going to reach the perfection of our faith, what is Jesus going to do? He is going to defeat sin. And the way he'll know that, we'll know that he actually did that is because he'll be able to defeat death. So on the cross, that's what he did. He took the sin of the world upon his own shoulders, he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we could have the righteousness of God. That, that sin that we deserve the penalty for was piled upon him so that all who have faith in Jesus can be counted righteous. He dealt with sin. He satisfied the wrath of God. And because he did that, because it actually happened, because that darkness had actually been defeated, then death couldn't hold him either. And so he rose up from the dead defeating sin and defeating death. That's what we mean when we say he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. How does that help us endure? How do we cons- So we're supposed to consider Jesus, his example. We're supposed to consider him as the founder and perfecter of our faith. How does that help our faith? I've used this illustration a couple of times and I want it to be one that we commonly know here at the church. You're driving your car along in a backcountry road and you come to a bridge that looks rickety and you're not sure your car is going to be able to make it over the bridge. And you're trying to figure out do I have enough faith to drive over the bridge? You get out of your car, you don't examine your car. You don't say is this car going to be good enough and have enough faith enough to be able to make it over the bridge? What do you do? You you go to the bridge and you examine the bridge. You examine the object of your faith. So you stand on it, you, you wiggle around on it, you look at how it's, you know, the foundation and whether it looks like it's ready. And if by examining the object of your faith you come away confident that it will hold you, then you're easily able to drive over the bridge. The way we endure in our faith, the way our faith is strengthened, is not by looking inwardly and summoning enough faith. I just need to have enough faith. I just need to believe more. If I just believe more, God will bless me. If I just believe more, I'll be healed. If I just have enough faith, then all will go right in my life. I'm suffering right now because I just don't have enough faith. What am I doing? I've got to have more faith. I've got to have more faith. i got to have more faith. That will exhaust you and wear you out. That is not what faith is. That's what humanity does. That's humanism. Look to yourself. Summon up yourself. You can do it. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith looks to the object of our faith. We look to Jesus. We consider Him. And we consider Him as our example. We consider Him especially as our founder and perfecter of our faith. That's how we look to Jesus. When you consider Jesus... Not only is he the perfect example of faith for us, he's also the founder and perfect of our faith. That's to say, in himself, Jesus proves that all the promises of God are yes. Remember the equation. Future certainty, present endurance. Nothing will increase your future certainty more than considering all that Jesus did. So, read about him. Sing about him. Pray in light of him. Talk about him. Look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. I want to close this sermon this morning by just sharing something from my heart. I'm always, I mean, not that I'm other times not sharing from my heart. but god's doing something really remarkable at maple avenue something i have not observed or experienced prior to coming here i am seeing lives transformed people who were people who were hostile to god now walking in hope filled faith lives that were broken and tattered now finding wholeness and life in Christ. And I see people coming here on a Sunday morning who haven't embraced Jesus, but who have their curiosity piqued. They're exploring. They're trying to think through what is happening here. I'm so grateful to God for that. but I know that what's starting right now will take endurance. I don't want these years to be the glory years of Maple Avenue. I don't want these to be your glory years, the years you look back on and say, oh, that's when my faith was really vibrant and strong. I want us to be a church and a people, and I want each individual here, including myself, to endure I want us to press on in the race until we reach the finish line. So I'm going to ask us as a church to just commit, not publicly or anything like that, but just in your own heart, to commit to doing three things. You can go home and talk to your spouse or your friends about these things, but I want us to commit to three things so that we can endure. The first is find strength from the Scriptures. here from the real people in the scripture who had faith and found great reward. We've got to be people of the word who are being fed in our faith by the people God's given us as an example. Second, put off whatever is holding you back. What are those weights? What are those hindrances? Put it off do it. Now, it, doesn't, it might not be a one and done thing for you. It usually isn't. It's a battle. Sin dies hard. But repent. And third, look to Jesus. May He be our song. May He be our conversation. May He be ever on our thought. My brother here, it's our first time here, and all he's saying is Jesus, 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 the whole service. That's right. He's my father. Hallelujah. He's our brother. God the Father is Father. But that's okay. Let's exalt Jesus. So, hallelujah is right. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. May he be our song. Let's pray. Father, I want us to be a church that endures. I don't want us to be people who go hard for a few years and then flame out. I want us to be people by your grace who endure. So may we be people who look to the object of our faith to consider Jesus and boast in him and him alone that our song is, All I have is Christ.